Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Liam Bullock, and we're going to be talking about his paper, which is in the International Journal of Greenhouse Gas Control, entitled Experimental Investigation of Multiple Industrial Wastes for Carbon Dioxide Removal Strategies. Welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so who are you and why are you on our show? So my name is Liam Bullock. I'm currently on a European Union Horizon 2020 project called DETAILS, which stands for Developing Enhanced Weathering Techniques in Mine Tailings, or something of there, there or thereabouts in terms of the wording of that. I guess I'm on now because we've started to put some work out from the project now. We've done a study on different industrial wastes and how they react with CO2. We've also done a couple of regional studies on, on areas to target for, for such approaches, such as South Africa and Spain, which is where I'm based, by the way, in Geosciences Barcelona. So I guess we're going to talk a okay. little bit so about that, right? You're obviously from the UK, right? Because you've got a British accent, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're, you're on an EU-funded project. Is it a British-run project or is it a foreign project? No, it's uh, yeah. So I am from I'm from England. I'm from Stoke-on-Trent, but this is a European Union project based out of Barcelona. So it, it's it's not part of any uh, UK RI funding or anything like that. It's a Marie Curie project. Okay, so it's a European project, and you're you're the only connection to it is that you personally happen to be British. It's not a British-run project, then, right? No, no, it's just it's that I happen British, to be British. Yeah, <laughs> British institution or anything like that. Fine. Okay, very good. So do you know much about Horizon? Because curious about it, to be honest, because we, uh, the UK voted to leave the EU after much dodginess, possible Russian money, and Cambridge Analytica. And then as part of that, we were out of Horizon for a bit, and then we were back into Horizon or something recently. I don't really follow this stuff terribly closely, but you might have a bit more of an insight into this as you've, you know, you're working on a Horizon project. Do you know much about it or not? Yeah, yeah. Just like you say, we, we were out, but I think the general consensus was that at least the academic world wasn't exactly supportive of this movement. And with all the collaborations that go on in around Europe as a continent as a whole, we've, we've managed to find our way back in, which is great because they offer a lot of different funding avenues, whether it's for postdocs or, or beyond that, up to, to really big multi-million pound or multi-million euro projects. And it seems like we've managed to, I mean, this is open to other institutes around the world as well. It's not specifically EU, but you do tend to have to be based in an EU institute, which, which is how I've ended up in Barcelona. Okay. And what is the institute you're at in Barcelona and how did you end up there? So it's called Geosciences Barcelona and it's part of the Spanish National Research Council. So it's not, it's not a university. It's not a teaching-led area. It is a research institute. I ended up here because after my postdocs in in the UK, so I bounced around a bit, Aberdeen, Southampton, and then Oxford. My wife being Spanish, she was she was ready to return back to, to the homeland and get some sunshine in her life. I happen to have a friend. Well, we haven't got much of that here today, I can assure you. It's very gloomy in uh, Blighty today. It's quite pleasant here. We've, we've managed... Don't rub it in, the no, no. <laughs> um, But yeah, I happen to have a... A friend, a colleague at Geosciences Barcelona, who introduced me to a fellow geochemist, because that's my background, and we, we thought of ways of getting a CO2 removal or a geochemical CO2 removal project off the ground, and EU Horizon 2020 was one such avenue, and I was very fortunate enough to, to get the money and the grants for that. 
now. So um, <laughs> do you want to tell me about how you got your grant then? Yeah, so I was coming to the end of a what was a UK-funded project called uh, GGRU, which was Greenhouse Gas Removal by Enhanced Weathering in Southampton and then Oxford. I, uh, As that was coming towards the end, and it, I realized that I was looking for something else, uh, the applications were open for, for the Marie Curie Fellowship. Simply come up with an idea for a project, fill in all the relevant forms, get the relevant partners, justifications, and all that. We managed to do that, managed to find some sample providers, some support from other institutions. And you say sample providers, you mean people that send you bits of rock in the mail, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah. So we found someone okay. to send us some bits of rock in the mail. And then as word got round, we got more bits of rock in the mail. So we managed to build up a pretty big sample set. And that's that's basically how the, the project started and, and how it's continued to now. There's only like two months left on the project. So this is the way of academic life since uh, January 2021. So it's a two-year project. Uh, 2022, sorry, so you, January you've, 2022. You've then, got, you've then got to run around and get new new grant in, right? Yeah, now it's a matter of either finding a new grant or going elsewhere and looking for a project outside of academia or, or a job. Okay, is that, this is the sort of very frustrating lifestyle of academics that are like perfectly good people just happen not to get grants and then they kind of disappear out of academia never to be seen again, right? Yeah, or you find yourself in a situation where you have to move every three years from, you know, Bristol to Copenhagen to, to yeah, yeah. Brussels I mean, you've, back like, you've to moved, London, you know. You've, you've moved to Spain, but obviously you've got family connections, so it's not, you know, hugely difficult for you by many people's standards, but there are a lot of people who end up moving all around the world, and I think some of my work has been in gender and its impact on science, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, for a lot of reasons, women often are reluctant to move all around the world in this kind of itinerant kind of way. And it's a sh real shame that you can't have, you know, in, this, in these days of digital working, we can't have a uh, an academic lifestyle where people can have a bit more stability. There doesn't seem to be an obvious reason why you can't be based at one institution, but yet, you know, funded by and reporting to the management chain of another, right? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't um, seem obvious to me why, why you couldn't work in Southampton, but on a, on a, on a, project that's you know funded out of barcelona or wherever i mean yeah and i think well i think covid has started to change that a little bit but there is still a hesitancy to to dive full into remote working at least in the academic sphere i think you see a lot of startups now at least in in what we do in in sort of co2 removal where they're very um, proud badge wearing remote job situations where you've got people in different continents even which yeah you know, i guess doesn't always work for making meetings at certain times but I, I otherwise there's one, no problem yeah i know at least one academic who works in a different continent to the place that he uh is um residing in so he's got an entirely or had an entirely remote job which is kind of cool at least no one's going to worry, worry if you're not in the office at 9 30 <laughs> in the morning when you live you know across an entire ocean from where you're working so um yeah okay right so did you use chat GPT to write your grant? I just want to know that because there was an article in Nature today that I've been reading about apparently everybody, they want to get rid of grant applications or at least change how they're done because everyone just uses chat GPT to write them because they get chat GPT does it better than humans do. So you might be, uh, you might be giving away some of your trade secrets here, but uh, is it, do you find that it's, it's now common to do well, grant applications with chat GPT? For mine, don't even think I was aware of chat GPT back in 2021 when I was writing this. I'm, I'm, maybe it was around, maybe it wasn't as sophisticated as it is now, but yeah. I certainly didn't. But 
I do use it a lot in my day-to-day life now, whether it's for simple questions or just for saying to it, oh, can you reduce this to a thousand characters or, you know, some of the uh, the very specific requests that you get for di- different grants and applications and things like that. So it's certainly integrating itself into my life now. But no, at the time it was more have a look at previous applications and where they succeeded and what kind of themes you could run through seven different applications that maybe were on different subjects, but kind of all had the same the same outcomes or the same language or, or style of writing that made him made them successful. Yeah. Well, I, I do use quite a lot of AI in my work generally, but mostly visual stuff rather than um rather than uh, for um written applications and stuff like that. But I might I might ch- change the dark side and start getting my writing done with um with AI in due course. So back to your paper and your squished rocks. So help me understand what you're doing with these rocks. So you you've got You've got rocks that are basically bits of industrial wax. Are we talking mine overburden, or are we talking outputs from process chemistry, or what? What's the what's the nature of the material that you're giving it's, us? It's a bit of everything that you've said, actually. So a lot of it is mine tailings, so sort of the discarded fine grain materials that are left behind once you've taken out your um, your targeted commodity, whether that's copper or platinum or diamonds. But, but let's be clear, because I yeah, there's a there's a potential for conflation here. I, I asked about mine overburden. Yeah, yeah. So I'm get, I'm, these, I'll these get to that. Yeah. Thing, yeah. No, no. So mine tailings are different than mine overburden. Tailings have undergone some kind of processing to separate out the economic fraction from the non-economic. So then the stuff that contains the economic metals or, or precious stones goes off for further refining. And this ground down stuff goes tailings down. But we do also have some overburden samples. In other words, the, the waste that... Are, generated when you out of the way exactly get it out the way to get to the stuff you want so that that becomes yeah. a, a bit more problematic i guess in terms of these aren't generally processed they're dug up and moved so you get everything from house size boulders down to to sands and finer so we've got some of that as well we've got some fly ashes from coal-fired power stations and some slags from copper refineries as well as some some other over, overbidden or, or the cuttings from a marble quarry as well and then some stuff. I don't from- know much about uh, copper refining, actually. It's one of the things I'd, I'd never really, it really occurred to me. There might be a, a source of materials for this kind of stuff. Yeah, and we've actually uh, opened up a bit of a can of worms there because we've been contacted by other slag producers or you know steel making industries and others that now want us to look at their different slag samples. There is a, there is a whole world of different slag samples. It's, that, a, it's a craze. It's, ca- it's catching on. I think so. I think we started a trend here, so we're gonna. Okay, you know, 2024 um, so, is going to be the year of the slag. Hey, we'll sample that and put that at the front of the episode. <laughs> so uh, what I want to understand is the uh, the relationship um, between the the market that you're envisaging here and the rest of the market that exists in this environment. Because you're, you're describing some wastes like blast furnace slag that could potentially be used for concrete production, right? So Concrete production, firstly, can absorb CO2 directly from the air. But secondly, you're substituting cement, blast furnace slag, and um, that potentially removes a useful source of um, uh, abatement by replacing cement, right? So help me understand how this interfaces with the whole market. If you get your hands on a bit of 
slag of some kind or another, then you know what's the effect on the on the on the whole market of how uh, what you're doing? Influences. Yeah, I mean, essentially, the well, the first step we want to take is to when we get our hands on the sample is just to see does it even react well with CO two, let's say in water, you know? So let's do some some basic. But benchtop experiments. Let's let's have it insaturated. Well, hang on a minute. I mean, imagine you've got a fair idea of what chemicals are in the samples anyway, and if it, it didn't react with CO two, you're not going to bother with it, are you? I mean, if it's like if it's some kind of acidy thing, it probably doesn't have much affinity for CO two. No, but you can get you can get stuff that's rich in you know the alkali elements, but perhaps they're they're just trapped away in minerals that react too slowly for it to make a difference. Like a like a quartz or something like that that really doesn't want to react with anything, let alone CO two. Right? Yeah, I mean quartz is obviously the worst thing. Well, not the worst because you can get things that, like you say, cause acid. But quartz is just silica, so that's not going to do anything. So if you've got a lot of quartz, yeah. you're not going to get a lot of reaction. But you could get something that's full of pyroxene or feldspar, which are two minerals that are very, very common and do contain magnesium and calcium. But it's a lot harder to break those bonds and get that magnesium and calcium out compared to like a, a magnesium hydroxide or a calcium hydroxide, for example. Yeah. So, so and this is one of the things that when, when we see people assessing how potentially useful a waste material or even a natural rock is for CO2 removal, if you look at the magnesium and calcium, it might give you a great number of how much CO2 could be captured per ton. But the question then is, well, how much are you going to realize from that in a year or in 10 years or in 20 years or 100 years? It might take a long time yeah. to get it out. So, so that's the kind of thing that also goes into consideration with these, these experiments. And uh, yeah, then, then it's a matter of how reactive the material is. Is it reactive enough to be pursued? If so, what is the best strategy to pursue for this particular material? Is this a material that we can go and spread on fields or does this need some kind of reactor setting or can we do something with the tailings dam to make that a more reactive system? And then, then we okay. go from there. So you're, so you're unpacking a lot of stuff without giving us the, the words for it that people might be familiar with. So in-situ weathering is where you've got a tailings dam and you blow CO2, you take Mohammed to the mountain, right? You take your CO2 to where the material is and then you react it where it's sitting around, okay? And then you've got yeah. ex-situ weathering, which might mean that you're either doing it in a pressure vessel, like a chemical engineering process, or it might mean that you're spreading around on a forest or a field or whatever, but you know, in some way you're exposing it to the natural environment. So you can broadly split this up in three ways, right? So you've got mm. holes in the ground that you drill in and then blow your CO2 into. You've got... Um, shiny things in factories that you fill up with your muck and then blow your CO2 into there with a bit of heat in normally and to make it all go quick. And then you've got uh, yokels and tractors who <laughs> go and spread this around or throw it in the sea or whatever, right? And do various stuff to it that involves moving it around, but then reacting it where it's landed, right? Yeah. So you've got your in situ, which as you say, you take Mojave to the mountain and you, you can inject your CO2 or a CO2 rich gas into material as it is, for instance, naturally. So, for example, carb fix are doing this in Iceland where they're injecting CO2-rich waters into the basalt. Well, yeah, 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 hold on, hold on. But they're not really, are they? Because that's not anything like what you're doing because that's natural rock they're reacting. They're not yeah, yeah, reacting. But, no. there, there are other, a better, much better examples is the stuff that De Beers is doing, yeah? So De Beers are the diamond miners. I think they call them the whole market for diamond mining. I think they're the only people in the world to produce diamonds, right? And... Uh, and and they are using their um, their mine wastes, which are very very rich. They're, I think they're called ultramafic rocks, aren't they? That diamonds are formed in. 
Yeah, Kimberlites. Kim, yeah, Kimberlites, for example, and and they um, uh, and they have um, very high potential to react with CO two, uh, yeah. and and that's an example of a an, an industrial sector where they're using yeah. in situ weathering, but with with tailings, right? Um, yeah, and yeah. then. And and uh, then you've got people like um, un- undo. I think undo use some form of mine wastes. They use consultant mine wastes. Yeah, yeah. So that it's they're not mining it specifically. They're taking other people's you know fragments of blasted and squashed rock of various kinds, and then they're spreading around on fields, right? Yeah, yeah. And that would be ex situ exactly. Yeah, and then can you give me an example of the third and and perhaps less common type, which is where people are using some kind of CCS type process. So they're, they're, they're taking a kind of factory type setting and reacting the, the rocks in, a, in an industrial facility of some kind. Who, who does stuff like that? Because I'm much less familiar with that. Now, I'm not sure if there are many people doing it at the moment, because in terms of scalability, you'd need a really big reactor, I guess, to do that. But in terms of uh, maybe on a mine scale, there is an idea that you could you could put materials in a reactor system, weather it, you could put it in another reactor system, carbonate it, and then you've got it built up on your site as you would normally store your, your solid wastes, for example. Um, I guess that would be a sort of an ex-situ reactor well, style yeah, if, system. If you've got a relatively con- concentrated stream of CO2, particularly if it's hot, so you've got something like a power station, right, or a cement plant, when you've mm-hmm. got, rel- I mean, cement plants are probably quite a good example because, you know, you, you've got a very high stream of co you can't run a cement plant with a wind turbine right mm. you've got to actually um keep making your cement for the foreseeable right so that that is an example of where you could potentially react the material ex situ and in an industrial process rather than ex situ and open right yeah yeah exactly i think it's, it's but, is it, but, but it seems you're not you're not concentrating on that are you it's not your, your principal no. focus. No. At one point it might have been, but but right now uh, we're not focusing on that, I guess. It's getting to the stage where I'm going to have to paint my colours to some kind of mast. And I think, like you, you talk about places like Undo, Planet, Eon, they seem to be making more progress at the moment than, than or at least visible progress compared to maybe some of the industrial activities which probably are occurring behind closed doors and we can't see what's going on there. Okay. I have, I have a bit of news, which I'm probably breaching confidentiality on this, but I'll say anyway. As far as I understand, uh, give me if I got the company wrong, but I think it's Ecotricity, the British electricity company, is looking to build um, uh, expertise in this sector. So you might want to make yourself known to the authorities if you have got expertise and wish to be involved in uh, their discussions. Now, I, I mean, I, I know what they're, you know, they're information about what their angle on this is but i'm not going to uh, i'll let them tell you rather than risk breaching any confidences i'm just aware that they are looking for expertise so yeah. um i think a lot of uh, the you know the oil and gas industry as well the steel making industry everyone's everyone's got their their fingers in the pie now i think and uh, they're, they're all either taking similar approaches or maybe something very different but i think everybody wants to uh, arrive at the same point where they've got something either on site or site proximal or whatever that they can use to to remove co2 okay so you your experimentation has involved getting these bits of um rock in the mail from various different pieces and you, you talked about house size boulders i'm guessing the or did they so how, how did you take account of this grain size issue which in some cases they're not really grains they're just massive lumps of rock right yeah 
for the sake of the experiments, we wanted to keep the size range uh, relatively uh, uniform across the across the suite, just so we could directly compare materials. But at the same time, well, we also wanted yeah, but, to. But 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 hold on, hang on. Like that doesn't necessarily follow, does it? I mean, but, they're not going to be the same sizes in no when you no, get no. I was, but we also wanted to reflect some of the the. the the natural variations, or if you can call it natural, that you would see on a, on a mine site or in a, an industrial site. So we did try and keep it within a tight range, but at the same time, we wanted to give it some kind of range. So we did have a, um, a bracket of material size that we wanted to use. For some samples, like you say, they come in that state already. For others, we, we're sieving or we're, uh, we're altering them. But at the same time, this is going to work. Perhaps some of these industrial practices do have to change to, to be... Uh, more suitable for CO2 removal, whether that's how you process the material or whether you store it differently, it remains to be seen, really. Well, I guess that applies most to in-situ weathering, because if you're taking a material out to, say, spread it on a farm or whatever, then you've got the opportunity to um, crush that rock further if you need it to be a different grain size. Whereas if you're trying to blow it into a tailings pile, if you're, you're just trying to take your CO2 and just directly force it into the ground, then you want to make sure that you're uh, that you're using material that's in situ and it and is in the right state to be used in situ rather than trying to fight with the grain size by blowing, um, as you put it, house-sized boulders with CO2, right? That's not going to get you, or is it? Well, if you've ever seen these, so for instance, tailings ponds in, let's say, platinum mines in South Africa, they're several kilometres wide and it's basically like walking on concrete with some cracks on the top because it's just so cemented and forced into you know, very little porosity. So in some of these mines where you might get some natural CO2 removal through normal weathering processes, that's going to only affect, for instance, your top surface. There could be maybe ways of changing how you store that material to maybe add some of that coarser material to create fluid flow pathways or something like that. I've seen some people who are using robotics and sending robots out on top of the mine tailings in order to um, just turn over the materials and then give access for water and CO2 to more to more sites, more depth basically within. So there are yeah there are plenty of things that I think skilled engineers would definitely be needed to think about how we could, uh, do this in practice. That's proper sci-fi dystopia. So you've got like this kind of post-industrial wasteland of concrete tailing ponds and then to solve the pollution problem elsewhere in your economy you're building an army of robots that goes out over these essentially like salt flats grinding up the surface to try and uh, have this kind of technological terminator-like fight against pollution that's yeah. just such a wonderful image especially it's with all the dust that it would create and sort of exactly crazy atmosphere it's that, it's that dystopia that i'm here for i love my high modernist dystopias that keep me motivated in the field. That is glorious. I've never heard of anything like that. What company's doing that? That is fantastic. I think there's a team based in Canada that are exploring that option. So again, on maybe on some of the diamond mines up there, there is this this thought that, you know, little Mars rovers essentially that will just go out and uh, turn over the material and, and keep it keep it weathering. Tell me more. What other stuff have you got that's um out of Blade Runner that we need to know about? <laughs> Um, I don't think we've got anything quite as fancy as that where there's going to be any robotic uprisings. I think one of the big ones now is sort of the the bio 
the biomediated enhanced weathering, so using bugs and microbes and things like that, which can speed up reactions. It's probably a lot easier, and the upscale potential is there to, to just breed bugs that can be like put out into the to the world. I think there's one team here in Europe that are looking at lugworms because lugworms eat their way through sediment and then secrete it out. So they're creating sort of a mechanical weathering and a bit of a chemical yeah, weathering. But biotubation, right? A lot of the weathering happens inside the animal's stomachs, right? Yes. Or whatever they put yeah. instead of a stomach if they're a weird, creepy thing, right? So, so as um, well as robots crawling around, we could have just thousands and thousands of lugworms crawling around these mine tailings as well, just devouring material and, and secreting it out. Are they genetically engineered or not? Or are they yeah. just in their natural state? I hope they're genetically engineered. I hope they they got sort of arms and legs and, and little hats and things, all sorts of cool. <laughs> Absolutely. You want the, let's, why have a half a dystopia when you can have a whole dystopia? Um Excellent. I really do like that. Thank you for coming on and talking to me about that. It's like my <laughs> favourite thing, hearing about this sort of stuff. Um, we ought to get them on. So if you know anybody from that team, then do get in touch and tell us because it would be great to, to get them to talk more about this absolutely a ludicrous solution to climate change, but I just want to hear more about it. So in terms of your own work, uh, have you finished it now or are you just sort of wrapping up? Because it... I, I never quite understand the way the project works in academia, right? Because you get a couple of years on a project. But the problem is that when you, you kind of finish your work, you try and submit it, and then your project's finished, and then you get your paper back three months later saying, oh, we've had a look at it, and we don't want to publish it anymore. Can you do it all again? So how does that, how does that fit with your grant cycle? How does that actually make yeah, it? Yeah, difficult, and especially because in the world that we work in, two years isn't a long time to see a, a lot of results in terms of, field-based yeah, trials papers that take almost two years to come back from review yeah. so i mean don't really understand how it all fits together in terms of publication yeah so so fortunately this this particular paper is out there now and in the world the next thing is to sort of develop yeah, but that that start again but what but but that's not i mean your project is still ongoing isn't it at the end of the project right so yeah yeah what's the score with the, the overlap between the project and the paper, because the paper must have been submitted a long time ago. So, yeah, so what's the situation? Into the overlap now is that from the papers, the people who we've worked with are now uh, so sort of industry sectors, non-academic enterprises. I've seen the results and have said, okay, well, let's pursue this now. Let's let's move on and focus a bit more in on you know some of the more reactive stuff. Let's say so after our paper where we published the CO two removal potential in Spain. I was contacted by a company called Carbon Neutral Initiative. They wanted to look so into... So can I just clarify? Yeah. Before you give us the details on that, can I just clarify? Are you saying that your paper was specifically focused on Spanish environments or was it worldwide or what, what geographies were you looking at? Sorry, I should clarify. Yeah. So that was a different paper where we just looked at Spain. And a lot of our samples from this, right. from our experimental paper did come from Spain, but we also had samples from Australia, Canada, the US... So, so uh, Mongolia, I think. Because right? Spain, Spain's a bit dry, isn't it? I mean, don't you want somewhere warmer and wetter? It's like well, a tropical type of environment is a normal place that you want to do the weathering, right? Well, so the targeted area in Spain is an area called Galicia, which is north of Portugal, and it gets roughly more than twice as much rainfall as Edinburgh, for example. It gets a lot of rain. It's, it's super green. It's, it's mountainous and green. It rains a lot. It's also warm. So you do get kind of that 
warm tropical climate in certain parts of Spain. So Galicia, Asturias, Cantabria and the Basque country all get their fair share of rain, but they also do get the nice warm weather as well. So it's quite good conditions for, for weathering. Yeah. So I think someone came on the podcast recently and was talking about Tasmania and, and said it was similar cl- climate to Portugal, you know, quite quite mild winters, quite warm summers. And so I guess Galicia would be perhaps similar to that, right? Yeah, um, it does. It gets gets a, you know cold, it gets snow, but it just gets rain all year round as well. Because it's on the Atlantic seaboard, right? So yeah, it's just exposed yeah, it's to the Gulf Stream. Very much, very much exposed to the Gulf Stream and to, to the elements up there. Okay. And is that where you would naturally want to do your enhanced weathering for Spain? And that's the, the kind of enhanced weathering capital of Spain, right? Yeah, because it also has a lot of mafic and ultramafic rocks. So you wouldn't have to move Handy. materials. Like, yeah, useful. you wouldn't have to move materials down from, from Norway or across continents or anything like that. You can move it 10 kilometers if you need to, or even just keep it where it is and just spread it around in that area. So that's another that's very, thing. That- very kind of gods to put that all in the same place. Isn't it just, yeah. And they've got the industry up there. They've got academic institutes. So so it's an ideal place for us to launch a project, really. So that's that's basically what we're looking it's to do now. It's a bit of a, a forgotten part of Spain, isn't it, really? I mean, it's not somewhere that gets a lot of... Um, it's, it's not very kind of in the news for political reasons. It doesn't have a lot of turmoil like you know, the Catalonia and Basque regions do. It doesn't have a lot of tourism like the southern Spain. Yeah. Mediterranean parts have so uh, no, it's, it's beautiful as well, and it's it's these Celtic regions as well. So you get a lot of um, similar culture, cultural crossover with you know Scotland and Ireland and Wales. You get a lot of people wearing sort of tartany clothes and even playing bagpipes. They drink cider up there. The food is incredible. The seafood, the the yeah, it's, it's remarkable. You beautiful. get people people wearing kilts and playing bagpipes in Spain. Like yeah, lost, yeah, lost Scots. Yeah, they're basically. They're part of that Gaelic culture, so they've got the all the same similar traditions, and yeah, it's it's an incredible sight. That is remarkable. I had no idea that you could go to Spain and still not get away from bagpipes. That's quite surprising. <laughs> um, so, but you're Barcelona, aren't you? So you're the other end of the country, so you don't get to go there very often, I imagine. No, yeah, residential trips there when, when we when we can find time. But yeah, I'm on the uh, the east coast. How how easy is it to get across Spain? Because they don't have the TGV or the equivalent thereof, do they? You know, is, is, the, is the Spanish rail system any good or not? It is, yeah. They've got high-speed trains, for example. Uh, they're affordable and they work and they're on time. So that's all good. You can drive. But that yeah, must be a real surprise for a British person. To oh, yeah. I just functioning rail network. I just sit there and I'm amazed that in two hours I can be from Barcelona to, to Madrid or, or beyond and... Yeah, the, you can fly it's within cheap the country. as well, isn't it? It is. It's cheap as well, isn't it? Like they, I mean, not just cheap ticket prices, because often travel's subsidised, but apparently Spanish railways are just genuinely cheap. They like they know how to run a railway, and they don't they do. spend billion dollars a mile like we do in the UK. And they don't um, pack them in like sardines. Everyone's sat down. Everyone's, it's a nice, clean environment. It's a much more pleasant okay, experience. So you've got big grants. You've got nice weather. <laughs> grants process fit in with your publication cycle then did you get everything done on this project you intended to get done or was there a lot undone and did they care about things that weren't done work out yeah we didn't get everything done that we wanted to get done we wanted to look at uh, basically some some methods of sulfur cycling or things like that to to basically use microbes to shift pH to uh, induce weathering in some 
samples and then change pH back up to induce carbonation or to precipitate samples. We didn't get that done. Basically, we had changes in our teammates and people changing jobs. We couldn't get it done. So we've kind of switched focus instead to looking at something else biologically. And so that's not been done yet, but it's ongoing. We've finally managed to get some field trials on the go. Your bug man left. My bug, my bug woman left, yeah. <laughs> okay. She, she took a um, job in industry. <laughs> did you have to give the money back for her bit of the project then? Or no, we just had to, we had, to, had to submit an amendment to the project, essentially. So we changed it over from, from one similar thing to another, changed our personnel over, and the EU was happy with that. They're not really checking up on us. I think they just kind of let us, let us go ahead and, and do what we need to do. And so, so we haven't been hassled or asked to give anything back yet. Perhaps at the end of it, they'll, they'll, they'll give me, a, maybe they'll shout at me, tell me I should have done something different. I think that's unlikely. If, they, if you've got all the money, how, how closely are they really going to check? Yeah. Uh, in, ter- in terms of the squandering and waste and bad accounting in the EU, I think you're going to be a very small part of any problem that they encounter. So... What, what were the main findings of your paper? Because we talked about sort of rough process that you followed, but what did you actually discover? I think what we discovered was that there are some samples out there that aren't really getting looked at in academic circles that seem to be just as reactive and giving us the, the magnesium and the calcium that we want for, for CO2 removal purposes, but don't get the attention that we spoke of about kimberlites, for example. Kimberlites have been well studied. De Beers has done a lot of work and a lot of institutes working with De Beers have. We think we often talk about nickel sulfide deposits, but we didn't particularly find them to be as reactive as... So for example, we looked at an ilmenite mine tailing from Canada, and that was just as reactive as some of these more typically studied or typically targeted materials, including basalts and, and gabbros as well. We didn't look at basalts and gabbros because we were looking at more... What's a gabbro? I've got a theory that geologists make up names for things. So right? gabbro, is, gabbro is the same as basalt, but it's a different texture. It's, it's more... The crystals are bigger because it forms below the surface, whereas basalt erupts at the surface and cools as a lava flow. So the, the same rock, just different textures. What did you find about the different things that... What about the different weathering rates? What what was overlooked? Um, it's so when you look at, uh, for example, we wanted to look at how many cations. Sorry, like so, magnesium and calcium, how they're released from the rocks as they're weathering. And as we'd expect, some of our more favourable materials, dunite, which is a um, ultramafic rock, our kimberlites, where our diamonds come from, marble, of course, being a carbonate rock with high calcium, they showed the highest cation release, cations being magnesium and calcium in this case. But we also saw quite a lot of potential for things like these ilmenite tailings, borax tailings, and even in some cases, copper tailings, which means that we shouldn't automatically just discount. I'm not sure what they use it for, actually, but we got some samples from a mine out in California, and they had very high alkalinity production in our samples. Okay. So the key message of a paper, as it were, is that we've forgotten lots of less common, less well-known uh, bits of rock tailings and overburden that are actually potentially pretty useful. Yeah. We ought to spend more time looking at things that are the full, the full menu, the full gamut. We need to be more omnivorous about our rock weathering. I think so, yeah, because, say, take copper, for example. Generally, copper sample tailings 
are full of quartz, like we talked about earlier. And we've, we had some samples that were full of quartz and they, they're rubbish, of course. We wanted to publish that because not enough people publish things that don't work. I, I agree. I, I did a paper recently about throwing um, uh, minerals out of aircraft for enhanced weathering. And, and I mean, not unsurprisingly, it didn't work that well. I mean, it's, it's not completely impossible. It's just not a very good idea. Like the transport emissions are pretty high and it's hard to make it trade off, right? Yeah. And so you so you had co- copper tailings or yes. is it overburdened? Uh, this is tailings. I mean, the, the thing with copper is that copper comes from a wide range of different uh, geological settings. So you talk to some people and you say, they tell you, oh, copper doesn't work because it's full of quartz or it's full of iron minerals and stuff like that. But some of it comes from mafic and ultramafic rocks as well. So it comes from maybe peridotites or amphibolites or these rocks that maybe contain higher magnesium and calcium. So well, we shouldn't rule them out. Again, I'm convinced that the geologists are just making these rock names up, just, to, they're just pranking us. We have to make sure we seem like we're doing something useful. So we have to. Well, I know. That's what I suspect. That's what I suspect <laughs> you'll do. So, what is an amphibolite? Amphibolite is an, a metamorphic rock which contains a lot of the mineral amphibole, which can contain magnesium and calcium as well. Though, so, because it's got a lot of amphibole, we just call it an amphibolite. And what is amphibole? Amphibole is a silicate mineral. So, it okay. can. But just another one of our many minerals which contains things like magnesium calcium iron things like that okay and so in terms of economic impact where do you think the kind of industries or regions or whatever that are most influenced by what you've learned in this paper are going to be even if they're niche industries which ones do you think would be most influenced by your learnings i think and we spoke about de beers looking at this i think the mining industry in general it started out as being sort of the leader in this kind of um, CO2 removal aspect. De Beers have been doing this for probably seven or eight years now. I think it's now time that other um, industry representatives from the mining world start looking a bit more detailed as well, start catching up, start maybe putting projects on the ground rather than just sending samples off to labs to, to look at or to, to academic institutes to run in, in little flasks and stuff like that. Mm. I always had it in my mind that they would be the, the world leaders in this by this stage, but it seems more like places like Undo and, and the like are, are taking the lead on this because maybe it's just a lot quicker and easier for them to get rocks in the ground than it is for a mine company to get anything approved. So I kind of hope it would spur some into life to, to try and get some projects out there. Perhaps if there are already projects out there, they're being hidden behind the closed doors. Maybe they'd be a bit more willing to to demonstrate what they have, even if it's just to show that something is happening and that they're trying to do something good. I always thought South Africa would be a leading example in this because they've got a lot of very favorable rock types and also mine wastes from their platinum and diamond mines. So it'd be nice to see some some activity down there as well. But at the moment, it's still very academic. So has South Africa done much or not? So only what is being do- done through the academic circle. So institutes in North America might be working with diamond mines in South Africa. And we did have conversations with representatives of the, the government in South Africa, and they seemed very keen on the idea, but they would much rather be looking at CCS than looking at CO2 removal by enhanced weathering or mineral carbonation at the moment. Why, why, the, they, why do they favour CCS? I, mean, I don't know whether it's just more of a familiarity it's been around perhaps perhaps a bit longer than than this stuff in terms of public knowledge or or even expert knowledge in some cases maybe it's just they're more familiar with that work than they are with this which is a shame because 
they've got a good opportunity down there to to take the lead on this. And like I say, at the moment, it's not happening, and it's up to these you know very young startups to be to be seen to be taking action, whether they're in the UK or Ireland or North America or the Netherlands, you know, places that. Yeah, I, I would have thought Australia would be quite busy. I mean, although it's quite a dry continent. There's an awful lot of mining activity there. They're a really big mineral producer, and it's also an industrialized country. And it's you know it's got a good legal system, a strong economy, good technology base, that kind of stuff. So yeah, you know, we they, don't hear much about it. No, they also have diamond mines and they have um, nickel sulfide mines. And one of the earlier sort of pioneering studies in this world was on a, a nickel mine called Mount Keith, which was shown to be carbonating naturally. And offsetting some of their CO2 without even trying to to speed it up or even change their practices. So again, it'd be interesting to know if there's still work going on down there to maximise their CO2 removal through some of their favourable waste materials as well. Well, you make an interesting point there. I mean, is this additional, or or is this just a case of people using accounting to claim carbon credits for stuff they were already doing? So there's no additionality. Well, it's probably a bit of both. I think there's that some are trying to be seen to be taking action, whereas others are actually trying to do something that could at least work on a mine by mine scale where they, they can they can start chipping away at the you know the gigatons of CO2 that they're releasing annually. So you're saying that in some cases people might just be hunting for credits from what they're already doing, but in some cases people are actually going to be going to change their practices. Do you think that the the what do you think of the economics of this? I mean do you think people should be able to claim credits for stuff they're already doing it's just luck that they're doing this kind of stuff or or do you think that it only makes sense if they um i think they need to be at least changing stuff yeah they need to be at least taking it seriously enough to uh, to monitor it and report it and to verify it in a an acceptable way it's no i get it get get the mrv point but that's not what i'm asking what i'm saying is like if if an organization is is doing weathering already yeah you know if they're achieving additionality then yes if they're doing something when you say well when you say additionality i mean yeah let's assume that you've got a a friendly mining corporation let's call them the argument saying mcbastard mines right Mm -hmm. so you've got mcbastard mines that's digging out copper or whatever and then they're just leaving their tailings lying around, pushing them over people's houses and things like that the mining companies do. Should the McBastard Corporation be able to claim carbon credits for stuff it's already doing, or is it only if they then change their practices that they deserve credits? No, I think any way that you're taking down CO2, whether it's um, through meaningful efforts or just as a byproduct of what you're already doing, if it's taking it down, if it's not contributing to CO2 into the atmosphere, then then yeah, it's it's creditable. Okay. So if I was an investor and I was going to buy shares in a mining company on the basis that um, uh, the carbon market was going to influence their profitability because they've got lots of unused mine tailings that they can then turn into revenue source, then what sectors or companies do you think would have the um, uh, the main benefit from uh, the effects that you're describing where do you think the investment opportunities are within mining um, for people who've got these untapped co2 resources yeah it would, from your own research i'd say the sectors in the diamond industry the platinum and the nickel probably have the most suitable materials well, the, for this the, yeah i mean the, the diamond one's well well known but what i'm interested in is where where this stuff hasn't been priced in already what does your research reveal that a market might not be aware of in terms of um potential for profits from enhanced weathering that wouldn't um certainly from 
certainly from the uh, where we saw in the titanium industry in Canada, there's a potential there. There seems to be some fast reacting stuff that would be beneficial for CO2 removal. One thing that isn't really talked about much is that when companies who do enhanced weathering use, for example, a rock called dunite, which is full of reactive minerals, the material is shipped away from the sites, but no one's actually looking at what you could do on the site with that waste material that's generated. Sometimes they don't want to move the waste material because it's too fine or it's just not in their interests. But these quarries and mines that are looking at Dunite, for example, could be doing something on their sites that they have probably the most reactive materials out there and nothing's really happening. And in your research, did you ever look at putting stuff in the sea and in rivers? No, I didn't. I know people who are looking at that and also people who are looking at things like desalination reject brines. So sort of the, the waste waters that come yeah, out after they're quite popular, aren't they? Exactly, yeah. It's not something I've ever looked at, but it's certainly interesting and something I would be, be very happy to, to delve into should I, should I be presented with such an opportunity. Okay, well, that's all very interesting. Is there anything else you want to say in your defence? <laughs> no, I'm very happy to come on and talk about it. It's not perfect science yet. It's still a young topic and I think we're all learning. And like I said to you before, and like you've, you've talked about yourself, Andrew, Sometimes publishing things that don't work are just as important as things that do work. Otherwise, we just keep... Well, it sounded like it worked fairly well. What didn't work? Well, look, I had 21 samples. Some stuff didn't work. <laughs> the, fly ashes work. Weren't, the fly ashes weren't great for reactivity. The fluorite tailings didn't really work very well. Some of the and copper samples way, did. Did they just not, did they not react? Or did they yeah. couldn't get the water flying through them? Or what? No, they just didn't react. So we're seeing basically the same trends in our the things that we were measuring so ph alkalinity magnesium and calcium we were seeing basically the same trends in the samples from the fly ash and from some of the slag samples and some of the copper samples that we were seeing in material the bottles that didn't have any samples in them for example so basically suggested that nothing's happening here it's no, not working. no reactivity at all right okay. no was yeah. that entirely un- unexpected or what um, in some cases it was expected like we had some samples that were just quartz rich so it did have a little bit of maybe feldspar in there that might have some calcium in it but we wouldn't expect to see the results and we didn't in the end and like i said some of the samples like our nickel sulfide tailings that came from canada like i said nickel sulfides have been in some of the pioneering studies because they're they could contain reactive minerals and while they did react okay they weren't as stellar performers as we thought they would be Okay. Right. Well, I suppose I've got to try and find some spurious reason to reject your paper. I think probably <laughs> jealousy is going to be the ba- ba- basis of it. You seem to have got yourself a nice grant in a country with decent weather, better trains than we I'm sitting here looking at the drizzle in October and it's rather cold. So um, <laughs> just out of personal bitterness, I'm going to reject your paper. Nothing to do with the standard of your work at all. I've been rejected for worse, so it's okay. I'm no, sure you have. We really like to try and run the whole gamut of reasons on review team. Is there anything you'd like to say in summing up or in mitigation before you're slung out of the studio, or are you quite happy with the way we've covered you and your work? I'm quite happy, and uh, the good thing about this is that it's, it's a fast-moving environment, so I'm sure my work will be out of date within six months, and we won't have to worry about it. Well, where are you, where are you off to now? Pastures new. But I guess... Grant, Grant's yeah, either searching for a new grant or 
moving into industry. I want to stay here in Spain and I want to actually practice what I preached by saying Spain has potential to actually go and try and do some of that potential now. So hopefully Galicia will be the so next call. In terms of the actual employment side of things, so your grant, your grant's finishing up, right? So when, when does a grant expire? Uh, December, end of December. Okay. And does that mean your employment contract ends at the end of December as well or what? Yep, certainly does. So I'll either be looking for more grants or I'll be working in an Irish a bit late, aren't you? I mean, it's like, no, I've got things in the works. Don't worry. <laughs> Are you not telling us though? I'm not allowed. It's, it's classified. You could, you could sell us, but then you'd have to kill us, right? It's strictly confidential, of course. Okay. All right. Well, when, it, when it's not confidential anymore, then let us know and you come back and tell us about that one as well. Cause that'd be quite I'd love to. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. You mentioned your partner. We don't normally go into friends and family stuff, but I mean, does she work in the field or not? No, no, she's a, she's a languages teacher. So she just... Unrelated activity. Yeah, she just pretends that what I do is interesting to her when I bore her and bring bags of rocks home from yeah, the beach. Yeah, relationships like that. So <laughs> I love talking about my work, but if I feel someone's asking me about it because they feel socially obliged to ask me, I cannot stand explaining it to them. It's just going through the motions. It's awful. Um, right. Well, thanks for coming on. A short but sweet podcast. And all the best for your lovely weather. Nice situation. And, well, you might get your grant for next time. Let's, let's hope that at least you manage to stay in the industry, if not everyone does. But, there, you know, there are some pretty decent job prospects in this field at the moment. So hopefully it shouldn't be too hard for you. Right. Goodbye. Thank you, Andrew.